it's Tammy Klein. How are you? Hey, Tammy. I'm can, doing well. Can you hear me? Yeah, definitely. Can you okay. hear me? Yep, I can hear you just fine. You're you're a little soft at the uh, and when I when you first picked up, but I can hear you great now. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, so very nice to meet you. Thanks so much for doing this and being such a sport. I know you're really busy. Oh, no problem. It's uh, it's a nice opportunity to get this work out there, so I appreciate the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I think I gave you a little bit of the lay of the land, but um, just to kind of refresh the, the, the process, how we'll do this is when we're ready to go silent or we're, when we're ready to um, kind of go into the interview, we'll go silent uh, for a minute um, and I will read my introductory script, the standard intro to the podcast, um, and then I will introduce you and just read um, a bit of your bio, which I have from the site, um, and then we'll go into the interview. Um, when we're ready to conclude, I'll read the exit script uh, and the cue um, for how you know it will end. I mean, you you have the questions, so you know what I'm going to going to ask, um, but I've got a cough drop. I've got to take that out. <laughs> it's not working. Um, so how we'll get, how you'll know is you, I mean, obviously you have the questions, so you'll know that, that we're coming to the end, but I'll also say, all right, we'll end it there. Um, so that's your, that's your cue. And then I'll read the exit script, um, and, um, thank you and wrap up and doing, we'll be, um, we'll be done and we should be done. I mean, it's, it's up to you. You can elaborate and talk, um, as much as you want. Um, the podcasts have run anywhere from 15 minutes to over an hour. Um, I aim for about 30 minutes, but if we really get into a, a good conversation and people have time and there's a lot of questions, um, you know, it can, it can go on, but, um, I want to try and be mindful of your time because I know that, um, I know it was, I know that you're really busy, um, right now. So, um, yeah, I hope to be done maybe a little bit after, after two, um, so a little bit after 11 your time, if that works for you. Yeah, that's that's great. Okay. Um, I I have something at eleven thirty, but yeah. um, that's it. Um, do you have any questions for me before we start? Anything that's not clear or no, not really. Happy okay. to wing it. <laughs> me too. <laughs> You've got to in this how business. <laughs> how long have you been doing this? Well, so I've been a consultant um, in the uh, fuels and vehicle space, or I guess in transport, for about 20 years. Um, and then I was uh, with a firm, or with a consulting firm that specialized in, you know, motor fuels issues. And then uh, I left um, about two years ago and then took a little time off and then decided I wanted to go out on my own. Um, but I wanted to do something different, you know, because there's tons of consultants out there, and I don't know, I wanted to find different ways to add value, and some, sometimes what I notice is, um, you know, it's like the oil industry does their thing, the auto industry does their thing, sometimes they work together, sometimes they sue each other, you know, you throw the biofuels people in there, um, you know, you have the NGOs, and then you have, um, you know, people in the academic community like yourselves, but you know, it's kind of um, a little bit siloed. Um, so when I went out on my own, I decided that I wanted to do a blog. So you can see that on my um, website. 
um, and I wanted to do um, a podcast, which I had no clue how to do any of this. I just thought, oh, that seems like a good idea. Um, and it's been it's been um, it's been really interesting. And then I still do projects. You know, I do consulting projects on a range of different types of fuels issues. Um, and then I have a um, service where I track sort of um, macro trends globally in fuels um, for for clients. Um, but I, I just um, yeah, I kind of you know, it's like there aren't that many podcasts out there. It's not like I spend a lot of time researching. I just thought, oh, wouldn't it be interesting to actually kind of dig beneath you know the press releases and you know the stories um, out in the in the mainstream media and kind of dig a little bit further. But I do not claim to be an expert in your study. It's like I saw um, equations and I was like, uh. <laughs> but I knew enough to know from the, from the study, you know, kind of reading the conclusions um, and kind of reading around equations that I did not understand. My husband's an economist, so it's kind of like you got the wrong Klein. Oh. Uh, but anyway, um, you know, I, I, I knew enough to know that it would be interesting, um, and I kind of find that you guys at UC Davis, you know, like in ITS and, you know, in, and in your department, I mean, they, you're doing like really interesting um, work, so I, I, t I do tend to kind of follow what is um, is put out. So anyway, that's how I kind of got started. It was probably more information than you wanted to know. No, that's but, great. That's great. Um, and ha so how many listeners do you have? Do you know? Well, I track, um, I'm able to track um, downloads and, um, you know, it's, it's into the, um, you know, like people who come into the site and access. Um, I don't get the date that data from iTunes. Um, but it is in, in the thousands. I mean, there are people around around the world that are listening to this. And then my blog readers, um, people on my mailing list, you know, it's about um, 400. Um, and it's people who are really, um, you know, they, they're in academia, they're um, in the, you know, they're oil industry or refining industry executives or auto ex executives, there's NGOs in there, so, and, and, they're, and it's international. Um, so it's um, it's it's actually a really interesting um, kind of a broad base. I mean, a lot of folks I know, um, but there's some people, you know, it's like I don't know, you know, don't know who they are. People write me and say I really liked that that interview. So it's it is kind of it is you know for a year. I've only been doing this for for about a year now, a little over a year, and it's um, yeah, it really seems to be kind of. Um, you know, gaining a following and and um, and taking off, and um, you know, and that's great. And hopefully, it's pro providing some some benefit to people out there as well, which is kind of one of my goals. Besides self promotion, like besides same shameless <laughs> self promotion. So um, hey, yeah, it's a dog eat dog world. It is, isn't it? Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, okay, so if you're you're ready, I'm ready. Let's do it. We'll just get right into it. Okay, I'm just gonna go silent. Welcome to the Fueling the Future podcast, where we get to the bottom of global trends, issues, and developments in future fuels and vehicles. Are you looking for real insight and analysis from the industry's top experts? Are you trying to stay ahead of the curve and read the tea leaves? Then you're in the right place. My name is Tammy Klein, and with me today is David Rapson. Um, and David Rapson comes from the University of California at Davis. Um, and we're going to talk about a really interesting uh, study 
that um, Dave and his colleagues did recently on attribute substitution. And the actual name of the study is Attribute Substitution in Household Vehicle Portfolios, which I will provide a link to on the site for anybody who's interested in, in listening. Um, Dave, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Tammy. So let me read a little bit of your bio for listeners who may not be familiar with your work. So Dave joined the economics department at UC Davis in 2008. Dave's research focuses on energy and environmental economics, industrial organization, and applied econometrics. His research includes several collaborative studies with regulated utilities and government agencies. These include the evaluation of dynamic pricing regimes, carbon offset programs, and the design and analysis of a large-scale randomized field experiment to test the role of information on price elasticity. His research appears in the American Economic Review, Nature, which is how I came to think, how I found the study, I think, and other academic journals. Um, Dave holds an AB in Economics from Dartmouth College, an MA in Economics from Queen's University, and a PhD in Economics from Boston University. Dave, that's quite a resume. <laughs> so it's great. Again, it's great to have you um, on the program. And I'm going to plunge right in and um, start asking you questions about the study. So just can you give the readers or the readers, the listeners, um, a little bit of background about um, the attribute uh, substitution study? Um, how did you all approach the analysis and, um, and what were the key findings? Well, it started from a curiosity about how firms and how households uh, behave in response to incentives and what that means for the way we might think about policies to, uh, you know, influence market failures such as climate change and, um, you know, pollution externalities that result from uh, transportation activities and, and other activities. And, you know, there's, there's a very large body of work that studies this type of thing. Um, but one of the features of this study that, that's new and exciting is that we are able to look at what happens within multi-vehicle households. So generally, the, the studies that uh, have been done on the auto industry previously, at least looking at uh, consumer demand in the, in the auto industry, are looking at single uh, decisions about single purchases. And there's kind of an implicit assumption that uh, one purchase is independent from other purchases. So uh, there's, there's not really uh, an attention paid to the fact that, well, households oftentimes own many vehicles, and there may well be some relationship between the decisions of what attributes to demand in one vehicle and uh, and what attributes are already present in other vehicles in the household, and you know there's lots of reasons why you think that 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 might that relationship might exist, and we were given an opportunity through a contract uh, that I have with the Air Resources Board, which is um, uh, an organization under the EPA here in California that's really uh, doing a lot of research and implementing a lot of policy to reduce transportation emissions in California. And uh, they, uh, I've worked with them to, to examine a few different things. And, and through that work, I was able to get a data set that showed uh, the cars that households own over time. So I basically see over several years 
all of the cars that are bought and sold within households. And so this gives us a, a platform to ask the question, well, how does, you know, what is the relationship between the attributes of the various cars in the household? And does this tell us anything that's relevant to, the, to uh, transportation policy, you know, greenhouse gas uh, mitigation policies, and, and those sorts of things? So what surprised you all the most in, in doing the study? Well, the, the main result is that, is that there actually does seem to be a very strong relationship between the attributes of uh, a car that you have uh, when, you, uh, when you buy a new car, you know, the car that you already have in your portfolio, and the car that you end up buying. And so we, kind of, we have a thought experiment in mind that, we, uh, that kind of forms the basis for our empirical approach in this project. So we think about a two-car household um, in an ideal world, we would want them to flip a coin and drop one of those cars, just sell it or retire it. Um, they're then left with a car that we call the kept car. And our research question of interest is how do the attributes of that kept car influence the choice of the next car that's bought? And in particular, we're curious about how the fuel economy of the kept car affects the, um, the fuel economy of the bought car. And what we find is that, that it actually has a very strong effect. So if you were to um, cause a household to buy a fuel-efficient vehicle today, then the next time they replace a the vehicle, they're going to choose a less fuel-efficient car. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of reasons why this might be the case, but the, the extent to which that shows up very clearly in the data I would say is the most surprising thing to me. It, it does appear that households really are, are viewing uh, the cars that they own as a portfolio. And so, um, you know, they may, for example, want to have one car that is fuel efficient and then another car that has more power or comfort or safety or seats. And, you know, those attributes that I just named are, are, are negatively correlated with fuel economy. So, um, you know, if you care about both fuel economy and all those other things, then if you force a, car, uh, a household to buy one car that's more fuel efficient, they might then go and buy a less fuel efficient car next time. And, and, and that's, in fact, what we find. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, in my, in my own case, um, it's a little bit of guilty as charged, although it was a little bit opposite in my, because that's, that's what I find really interesting about the study is it's very relatable, uh, at least to me as a consumer. Um, so I just bought a new car, um, but in my case, I had um, a larger um, SUV. Well, maybe it, maybe not, actually. So I had a larger SUV. I have a 2006 Toyota Sequoia. And I was driving um, a 1997 Honda CRV. I called it my little trusty. Um, I mean, like the car would not die, you know, and, and it's still, we actually gave it to someone and they're, they're driving the car now. And then we bought um, a smaller car, a small car, or a car that's in line with um, the Honda CRV, which was a um, BMW X3. Uh, so not a large, large car, but it is interesting because we chose to get rid of the older car. I mean, obviously it's an, it's a nine, it's a 97. So it's, it's way, you know, 20 years old. We're like busting out the uh, <laughs> vehicle turnover uh, rates here, but we did not choose to get rid of the large car. And, um, you know, 
it's the and the reason is is we wanted the you know the towing ability the hauling ability the um you know the the space um that the smaller um x3 didn't provide so in a sense um, I mean, when I read, when I was reading the study, it was like, oh my God, I'm a statistic, you know, it's, uh, it's me. And if I walk around my neighborhood, you know, here in Florida, it is, I mean, I see like the larger trucks, you know, actually, you know, fuel inefficient pickup trucks. So your F-150s, your, you know, GMC Sierras, and then I see, you know, like a Toyota Prius, you know, parked next to it, literally, you know, it's in uh, some of my neighbor's homes. So it's, it's, it's interesting. And it, it sort of gets me wondering about, so this study focused on California drivers. So if that is happening in a state where there's a lot of environmental um, knowledge, consciousness, um, there's a lot of education out there about, you know, uh, uh, transport choices, you know, if you will. Um, you know, what does that say about um, drivers across the country? And is this issue, could it possibly be exacerbated um, e even further? So I'll just stop there. Well, you know, I, I I think it's pointing to a feature of household preferences that is probably quite common, which is, you know, there's a diverse array of transportation needs in a household, mm -hmm. and some of these needs are going to be met by small cars, and some are going to be met by big cars, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, you know, I, I think many of us, you know, certainly myself included, really care a lot about the environmental outcomes, mm -hmm. but when you think about the value created by transportation, it dwarfs the damages uh, of, of pollution um, by you know, a, a large amount. And so we really, I think, need to, to care about what is the purpose of, of, of buying a car? What are the services that we need it to provide? And yeah, what we see in this study is um, even in California, where there's a high degree of environmental consciousness and care, uh, people are valuing other things as well and I think that makes perfect sense you know I, I've talked to some of my good friends about this study and um, you know one of them lives in the Rocky Mountains up in in British Columbia and she you know posted on Facebook listen Dave I you know I need my SUV I need to be able to have four-wheel drive mm -hmm. I have to be hauling all sorts of stuff around she's like I just can't drive a, you know, tiny fuel efficient car. It's not that I don't care about the environment. It's just the reality of, you know, where I live and how I live. And I think that's, you know, there's, that's completely normal. And I don't think people should feel an, an ounce of guilt about that. Um, it's just the fact of kind of the way we are organized. We need to get around and we get a lot of value from that. Yeah, I mean, um, I appreciate that um, the the fuel economy. We don't need to have fuel economy shame, um, <laughs> but um, exactly. but you know what she's saying is so true because um, you know the, the the funny thing is is that um, you know we really don't drive that vehicle very much. Um, I mean, it really does sit in the in the garage most of the time, and I would say. 95% of our driving is is in the smaller car, but it's like we might need it. And then if I think back to why we bought the car, we used to live in a very 
uh, rural area in North Dakota. I mean, it's, it's, you know, we used to live on a hobby farm. Like our, our life was really um, different. Now we live in a more, um, you know, suburban um, setting. But back then, you know, it's like, you know, you can't um, put 100 pounds of, um, you know, 100 pound bags of chicken feed in a Fiat, you know, sorry, it just isn't, you know, it just isn't going to work. So it's, it's, it is interesting to think about the, um, you know, the implications of this. And I'm always kind of fascinated by, by consumer, um, you know, behavior, like, why do we make the choices that we do? And, you know, and how can we can we make better choices? But the other other thing I think about a lot is the um, the policy implications. So that's what I, I want to ask you about is, you know, if if this dynamic is happening in California and maybe you know elsewhere around the country or for, or for that matter even around the world, um, what does that say? I mean, at least in the, in the U.S. context, what does it say about the effectiveness of our fuel economy policies? Do we need to, um, you know, rethink them in some way? I think that we do, and this is this is a, a you know a belief that I and many energy economists have held uh, for quite some time. And this study that we're discussing today is, is just one other reason why we do. But I, I think taking a, taking a step back and looking at um, the incentives that fuel economy standards produce uh, in the transportation economy is is something that's worth doing. Um, so, the, you know, if, if your goal is to reduce um, gasoline usage or, say, reduce greenhouse gases, then fuel economy standards are going to have, they're going to produce some incentives that act in the direction of achieving that goal, but they're going to be unintentional incentives that accompany uh, the way that it's set up that act in the opposite direction. And so I think it's really important if we care about carbon emissions, carbon abatement, um, and the cost effectiveness of you know, climate change mitigation policies, then we really should be concerned about the un- unintended consequences of this type of policy. And I can describe to you just in very plain English a few of the things that are going on there with fuel economy standards. Mm-hmm. Sure. So the way they're set up, fuel economy standards uh, require a, weight, uh, a vehicle fleet weighted average um, fuel economy for each uh, manufacturer. So let's say that uh, that's the standard is set at a weighted average of 25 mi- uh, miles per gallon, then, say, Ford would have to sell, uh, sell cars the weighted average fuel economy of which exceeds that threshold. What that essentially does is it makes it um, more costly for them to sell gas guzzlers, uh, which causes them to raise the price of that a little bit. So it's like taxing gas guzzlers, and it's like subsidizing gas sippers or fuel-efficient cars, mm-hmm. because in order to comply with that subsidy, they need to get the right mix. And you know, on the face of it, that sounds um, that sounds quite reasonable to tax gas guzzlers and subsidize gas sippers. But when you actually think about it, if our goal is to reduce gasoline demand, we don't want to subsidize cars that consume gasoline, right? We want to have fewer cars on the road that are consuming gasoline, so we don't want to subsidize any of them, even if they're fuel efficient. So that's, that's one area where, uh, where the, the, uh, this policy is going to be imperfect. 
Another is that it's putting households, putting consumers into cars that are less expensive to drive a mile. So I think many of your listeners might be uh, familiar with the term the rebound effect. Yes. This is a you know common feature of energy efficiency uh, interventions where they reduce the cost of producing whatever the energy-consuming durable is, is doing. So in this case, we're talking about transportation. A fuel-efficient car costs less to drive a mile. And what happens when something costs less? We consume more of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so that incentive is operating in the opposite direction to what we want. We would like, uh, like people to be driving less if our goal is to uh, reduce the amount of gasoline that's consumed. And it turns out that that rebound effect uh, is, is quite large. And, and actually the study that you mentioned uh, in Nature is, is a, it's more of a comment that synthesizes uh, the the work that's out there, and actually we have a follow up piece mm-hmm. that you know expands on that even more. But you know our best read of the literature is that that the rebound effect is large. It's probably somewhere between twenty and sixty percent wow. of the anticipated savings uh, from making a car more efficient. On average, is going to be eroded by all of the follow on rebound effect incentives that are that are created. And, you know, this, so those are just two. I mean, there, I could go on. There, you know, it, it makes used gas guzzlers more scarce, and they mm-hmm. end up being more valuable. There's a great study by my colleagues uh, Arthur Van Bentham and Mark Jacobson that look at, you know, how old gas guzzlers are retired um, later in life as a result of fuel economy standards. And, of course, that's, we don't want that to happen either. I think you're... Your example of, of your your portfolio is potentially you know one uh, one example of this. If mm-hmm. there were new big cars that were available for purchase uh, today, you might have sold that uh, that Sequoia mm-hmm. earlier. Mm-hmm. Yep, maybe, maybe. You know, and yeah, you never know. Yep, and it, that's uh, that's that's totally possible. You know, but I, the where I see this. Um, the, the rebound effect, I mean, you really can see the, uh, the, the impacts of it is, um, I mean, you know, certainly in, in this country, but um, in Europe, because, um, you know, uh, the EU shifted more towards uh, diesel. Um, the European uh, Union or the European Commission put into place policies, and so did the member states, to favor diesel, um, both with, um, you know, tax incentives and other sorts of policies. So, you know, diesel came on the market. People bought them. Uh, the whole purpose of this was, um, you know, to increase uh, fuel efficiency, to reduce uh, CO2. And, you know, I'm sure you've seen in the literature and, and I have as well because I actually, you know, wrote a, a paper about this um, several years ago. It, it was really stunning to look at the studies. I mean, the the impacts are almost canceled out. And then now if you look at the air quality situation there, I mean, it is, you know, they have problems with NO2, you know, or, or nitrogen dioxide. They have problems with particulate matter. They have problems, you know, they're not meeting their greenhouse gas targets and transport is a, is a big problem is a big cause of that so it is um you know and then they're they're now introducing new fuel economy standards and i kind of wonder you know um what the effectiveness is going to be because if you don't close that gap um how are you going to you know to to get the benefits so i don't know if you have any any comment on that 
Certainly, I, I think that um, you know all of the, all of what you just said and the different channels of incentives that I was describing earlier lead us to to wonder: Well, is there a policy out there that actually aligns all of the incentives and um, you know causes people to both buy fewer cars, buy more efficient cars, and drive them less? All things that we really care about um, when it comes to transportation policy. And there is such a policy, and that is putting putting a price on carbon somehow, mm, yeah. putting a, in, increasing the cost of gasoline. Um, if you do that, it's going to create incentives uh, that are aligned with with all of those goals. Uh, and so this is, you know, one of the this is the main reason why economists advocate so uh, relentlessly for uh, you know increasing the price of of bad things yeah. uh, because it actually does work and it produces incentives that operate along all all of the margins that are relevant some of which you know we might not even be able to predict right it's uh, uh, it's taken a long time for example for uh, for economists to understand all of the incentives and we, we probably don't actually understand all of the incentives uh, from fuel economy standards yet, but we, we have a good understanding of several of the incentives now that are being created, but it takes a long time because it, it, it's complicated. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, a simple, elegant solution like a carbon tax or a cap with tradable permits, you know, both of those are going to increase the cost of things that lead to pollution, and economists think that's that's the most effective way to go. I, I certainly fall into that camp, and, and I think you know, people view uh, those solutions for a variety of reasons as politically uh, unpalatable these days. But really, I, you know, I'm I'm beginning to to think that we have to work towards shifting the political calculus off uh, on those issues if we want to really make headway. You know, but I, I'm I'm agreeing with you um, because in the fuels area, it's just. Uh, um, you know, it just doesn't make sense to me. I kind of wonder, and I am not a, an economist. Um, I don't even claim to be that good at math. So, um, that's why I went to law school. But, I mean, one of the things that seems to me, you know, just it doesn't make sense to me is, um, you know, we're spending money on all these different kinds of programs, you know, uh, renewable fuel standard, um, you know, carve-outs here, um, fuel economy standards, um, you know, even some of the California programs because, you know, we can't get around to um, putting a national or international price on carbon. And I just wonder how much you know it's 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 inefficient and i wonder how much we're spending versus you know okay let's just do this and get this done <laughs> because um you know we're spending billions and billions and maybe even trillions you know complying with all these different kinds of programs um because we can't agree to a carbon tax it just it just doesn't make sense to me increasingly and increasingly and increasingly so um, don't know if you if, if you have a thought um, about that, but that's kind of my thinking. Is and I don't know if anyone's ever calculated that, but it seems like we're wasting money, and we're wasting time, and we aren't really getting you know the benefits we need to be getting. So why don't we just kind of like bite the bullet and um, and do this? I mean, it even it even impacts things like you know, clean tech R&D and even, you know, R&D for, you know, let's say, you know, biofuels or advanced biofuels or bio-based 
um, you know, fuel alternatives. I mean, you know, it's that that sector is really, um, you know, depressed. And um, but I think the dynamics would change if there were a carbon tax. I know that's way beyond the purview of the study, but um, yeah, it just seems like we're dancing around this and 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 wasting time and money. I think you're exactly right. I mean, you're preaching to the choir mm -hmm. on, on that one. And, um, <laughs> you know, I, it, it's also, it, it strikes me that because of all the benefits of a simple policy like a carbon tax or a cap and trade, um, it's, it, it seems like it ought to be more politically feasible. Because, like, let's take a carbon tax, for example. Um, it's a very... Uh, conservative approach to solving a problem that a lot of liberals care about. And I think everybody, at least everybody who understands um, the distortions that are created from other types of taxes in our society, like income taxes, for example, um, you know, if we were to have a carbon tax, we could use the revenue from that tax to reduce distortionary taxes in other areas of the economy. So it, it would actually have kind of a dual effect of helping to solve this very complex problem of, you know, in energy and environmental issues, um, while also potentially reducing distortions in other areas of the economy and promoting economic growth. So it's such a sensible policy. It's aligned with goals from the left and the right. Um, but at the moment, it's just uh, politically toxic and um, you know, one of my big questions is how can we change the calculus on that? And, you know, I don't really have an answer to that. Yeah. Might be waiting another three years. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> well, yeah. even that, I mean, it's not like, it's not like Democrats were able to, to get this done either. Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah. uh, these, it's, it's, uh, it's a tough issue. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so the last question I want to ask you about the study um, concerns sort of where the auto industry fits into all this. So I'm going to read a statement um, or a, a paragraph from the study um, and then ask you a question. So um, you and your colleagues say in the study that, and it's kind of a long paragraph, but you guys say that we further find, quote, we further find that changes in gasoline prices affect household preferences in intuitive ways. As gasoline prices increase, the effect of the kept vehicle con fuel consumption and the probability of buying a car in the lower quartile of fuel consumption becomes even more positive. In contrast, as gasoline prices increase, the effect of the kept vehicle fuel consumption and the probability of buying a car in the upper quartile of fuel consumption becomes even more negative. And then you guys also say, quote, fuel economy standards in many countries worldwide are vehicle attribute based, e.g. footprint in the U.S. and weight in several countries, whereby larger or heavier cars receive a less stringent fuel economy requirement. To the extent that the portfolio effect uh, manifest through preferences for vehicle size, there will be consequences for the realized effectiveness of fuel economy standards relative to expectations. So when I read this, um, I was reminded of some points um, that the auto industry here um, has been making to EPA similar 
um, with respect to um, the setting of tougher fuel economy standards. So they have said that EPA in the midterm, the first midterm review for fuel economy standards, that they did not take into account consumer preferences in the setting of the of the standards, and that you know gas prices have decreased, and sales data are showing that consumers prefer larger vehicles, and that they're less fuel efficient, um, so on and so forth. So. Does the statement from you and your colleagues, does that kind of agree with their argument in some sense? Um, and, you know, how should, does this go back to what we've already been, been talking about in terms of rethinking uh, fuel economy policies? I mean, you know, what's, what's your thought about that as far as, you know, the auto industry's, you know, position on this issue? Yeah, um, that's a great question. So, so first of all, when you read the paragraph from our study, it makes me realize we need to to write policy briefs that <laughs> have you know simpler, plain English ways of saying things. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, I think the point that you're making is, is true. So, I want to touch back on what I said earlier when mm-hmm. we were talking about you know um, fuel fuel economy guilt. Uh, you know, the consumers care about a lot of stuff in addition to environmental outcomes or, mm-hmm. or energy consumption when they think about what cars to buy. And I, I do think that that is, is not fully taken into account when, when uh, considering a policy like CAFE, which is essentially forcing consumers to, uh, to deviate from what is their optimal bundle of attributes in the car that they buy. So. So I think that that yes, uh, that that is kind of a, a you know a, a difference in view. I would say that the EPA probably has that you know we're we're going to try to implement this um, both because we care about environmental outcomes, but also because the EPA actually believes that consumers are not optimizing, that they are not taking into account the fuel consumption costs when they buy cars. Now this is a a uh, commonly held belief that I think is. Uh, you know, my my read of the literature is that this actually is not true. That mm-hmm. that consumers do respond to these incentives, and actually, in what you just said, it, uh, it it it's clear. When gasoline prices are high, you see consumers buying uh, fuel efficient vehicles. When Absolutely. When gasoline prices are low, you see them buying SUVs. This is uh, this is evidence that they are responding. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just what I just said isn't dispositive, but it doesn't you know close the debate. But the studies that have looked at this carefully do provide strong evidence that consumers are, are caring about the future stream of gasoline expenditures when they choose the fuel economy of the car. So this, this um, you know, sense that they're not rational, which, which is, is one of the major uh, articulated reasons for fuel economy standards by the EPA, just simply isn't true. Uh, and there's there's one other thing that you touched on that I think is also important, which is the footprint uh, basing of the fuel economy standard. So the the threshold, um, the, the fuel economy threshold in the standard uh, varies based on the size of the vehicle. And so you can, if you if you build and sell a larger vehicle, that vehicle can have a higher uh, uh, a higher gasoline demand. And that will still be in compliance with the uh, with the regulations. And and what we see in this study uh, makes that a very concerning feature because if you're um, you know if you're making one car more fuel efficient through this policy, and consumers then want to buy a bigger car the next time, 
then they can do that and still uh, com- and and and, the, and still be in compliance, or the, the the manufacturer can be in compliance with the policy because of the fact that it's attribute based, that it's footprint based. So um, that that I think is a really important and subtle observation. Uh, but yeah, all of this adds up to a real question about, you know, are these standards doing what uh, what even the regulators want them to do? And is there a much better way to do it? And I think the answer is yes, there is a better way to do it. So my super, super last um, question is, I'm um, wondering if you've had any, if you and your colleagues have had any reaction from either um, CARB or um, EPA. So CARB, for, for listeners who may not be familiar, is the California Air Resources Board, the, the chief um, environmental regulator in California, and then also EPA. So I'm wondering if there's is there's been any, any reaction or, or any any discussion post, uh, post the papers uh, being published. There's been nothing in the public in the public domain. I mean, I think there is disagreement about some of the things that I just described mm-hmm. about the the rationality of consumers. Um, but but no, there. Uh, you know, I think this debate has been going on for a long time. I've oh, had yeah. many many conversations with people at ARB and um, and at EPA, and you know, I, I think they're aware of of this research and just have a, a different view and probably also I think are constrained by uh, the politics of the situation. Um, but, you know, I think it would be very healthy to have more of a public debate about this. It's, it's um, you know, a little bit nuanced and wonky, but it really cuts to the core of, uh, of some of the energy policy in this country. And so I think a light should be uh, shined on it. Yeah, I agree with you, and that's why I um, I asked the question because it seems to me, um, I mean, obviously, you know, EPA is constrained by the confines of uh, legislation as it was written, which it is expected to, um, you know, to execute. But that being said, I mean, you're right. I mean. You know, this discussion, this conversation has been going on for, you know, for years and years and years before you or I ever, ever came along. And it's just, it just seems odd to me that the, um, you know, kind of the, for, for lack of better words, it's probably not uh, precise, but the kind of the attachment to doing um, doing it in this particular way, um, and you know, I mean, there's been tons of proposals. I mean, just this this past year, you know, Cass Sunstein, um, you know, others, you know, proposing different ways to to um, to look at and to regulate fuel economy, and um, and yet, you know, here we are. So there just seems to be kind of an at- an attachment here, which you know, it doesn't seem to be serving the the overall um, goals um, that are intended here and probably isn't that helpful to the auto industry either. <laughs> I mean, you know, so it's, um, it is sort of a, an interesting um, area of discussion. I don't know if you want to make a last uh, comment before we, we close on that. No, I mean, I appreciate uh, what you just said. And I think the last thing that I just would like to mention is this this is a co-authored study i should have mentioned this the the first first thing in the podcast but um it's co-authored with uh, a graduate student of mine jim arksmith uh ken gillingham who's a professor at yale and chris knittle who's a professor at mit and you know they are uh, all uh, you know major contributors to 
to the study, so I think it's just important to note that uh, note them. Absolutely, and they will be also noted um, in the post and um, that that goes on with the, that is that is posted with this podcast, and really um, appreciate um, you saying that. So um, okay, so we'll end it there. Um, that's the show. Thanks for listening. I want to thank Dave so much for being on the show today. It was great to have you. It was a great discussion, and probably TMI on my lifestyle habits, but it's kind of an interesting conversation to have. <laughs> Um, Likewise, thank you. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I hope uh, I hope to kind of continue the conversation as as you and um, your colleagues continue to to research uh, in this area. So please do us a favor today before you go, uh, head over to iTunes and rate this podcast. This is huge for us in terms of improving our ranking and keeping the show visible so that people uh, can discover it and also hopefully benefit from it. Thanks ahead of time for helping us out. And if you're looking for more insight and analysis on fuels and vehicles issues, sign up for my free newsletter at futurefuelstrategies.com. Thanks again. Okay. Well, thank you so much for um, that. Was a really interesting conversation. I, I really appreciate your uh, your time today. And uh, so, what'll happen next? Just to give you sort of the brief um, brief review.